I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined. For years, futurists have talked about a time when computers could surpass human intelligence in terms of rational problem solving. But what happens when that tips into the world of creativity, too? To watch an algorithm write a sonnet or uh, create a work of art that's winning. You know, we have all these examples lately of AI-generated art winning competitions um, against human artists. And I think that is really destabilizing for a lot of people. And later, how chatbots offer a very practical solution to our mental health crisis. People, patients, talking to a chatbot or talking to something that you know might not judge you, that, um, that is always going to be there at any hour of the day, these things can be there for you in a way at times that another person might not be able to. The future of AI and the impact on our creativity, humanity, and well-being. That's coming up on Life Examined. Whether it's driverless cars, medical advances, or technology to plan and cook your dinner, artificial intelligence technology has numerous benefits, which are slowly beginning to seep into our everyday lives, whether we're aware of it or not. Fast-paced advances in AI technology like ChatGBT have led many tech experts to call for a pause in its development, saying human competitive intelligence can pose profound risks to society and humanity. Renowned scientist Stephen Hawking warned that development of full AI could, quote, spell the end of the human race. So how do we make sense of such rapid changes? Are we even aware of how this might impact our own creativity, humanity, and lives? Is there a way to ensure that AI stays aligned with our own human values? In her book, God, Human, Animal, Machine, Technology Metaphor and the Search for Meaning, author Megan O'Giblin writes about the intersection of humanity, spirituality, and technology. Megan O'Giblin, welcome back to Life Examined. Thanks so much for having me. You know, I, I want to start with just your bird's eye view of this really amazing moment in time. Um, AI seems to kind of just be unleashed in different ways, whether it's through ChatGBT or so many other manifestations of that. You have tech leaders saying, maybe we should stop this. Um, I know this is something you've been thinking and writing about a lot. So when you take a step back and just look at this moment in history, how do you make sense of what's happening right now? I think we're really at a point where we're trying to uh, you know, in addition to trying to figure out where this technology is going, what it's going to look like in the next year, or the next five years, or the next 10 years, I think the thing that I've been thinking about a lot and that a lot of people are thinking about is what does this mean um, in terms of what it means to be human? Or how do, how do these technologies and these incredible capacities that we're seeing emerge in tools like ChatGPT or AI image generation uh, technologies, how is that changing the way that we've conceived of ourselves as humans and what is our role going to be in the future living alongside these technologies? So I think for a long time, um, we've really conceived of ourselves as being at the top of the intelligence chain. If yeah. you look back, you know, this goes back to, I don't know, Aristotle and to these sort of medieval conceptions of the scala natura, this, this idea that all things in the world are arranged according to this hierarchy with humans at the very top, right below God and the angels. And below that, we have, you know, animals arranged according to their level of intelligence, according to the frameworks of that time. Um, and, you know, non-animate non, uh, things like rocks and, and human tools and things like that at the very bottom. All of that has been, uh, well, it's, being, it's been scrambled yeah. <laughs> for a long time. As soon as, you know, we started building machines and it became clear very quickly. I mean, that, that old framework of what it meant to be human was based on intelligence and particular in reason, this idea that, that reason is sort of what ensures that we as, as humans have a place above the animal world that we're made in the image of God. And yeah, you know, what, what does it mean when you have a, a computer that's capable of beating a human at chess, let's say, or at, you know, being able to solve theorems that we can't do with our own minds? Um, and so that, that idea has been shifting for a long time. We've sort of accepted, well, maybe it's not our reason or our intelligence that really makes us human. Maybe it's more our creativity or maybe it's our emotions. And, you know, I think for a lot of times people were really hanging on to creativity too. And until just a few years ago, in fact, the, the dominant argument in a lot of conversations about automation was, well, you know, we'll build these tools that are going to be able to take over a lot of the sort of heady intellectual rigid tasks 
that machines are good at and we'll be able to be more imaginative and spontaneous and do the things that we're very good at as humans and you know now to watch an algorithm you know write a sonnet yeah or uh create you know a, a work of art that's that's winning you know we, we have all these examples lately of of ai generated art winning competitions um you know against human artists and um i think that is really destabilizing for a lot of people because it's not just about i mean there's there's the more practical questions about what is you know the economy going to look like for for artists and writers and people who have built their lives around these fields but also you know what does that mean if if creativity is no longer something that we are uh the best at as mm. humans so that's that's the way that i've been thinking about it a lot in in terms of just this you know the, the conversations that are happening around these this newest iteration of of ai I think you've hit on like some really, really big, interesting things here. And I have like 20 questions that arise out of all of this. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really fascinated to sit with this concept of now there, in a sense, is, is a higher level of intelligence, of problem solving, of reason. And, you know, as you said, going back to early philosophical times, humans prided themselves on being at the top of that food chain, essentially. And I wonder why you think there has been this impulse in humans to then essentially try and create something greater than us, right? To to find a way to kind of outduel ourselves. And and I take it it might have been economic. We we can kind of automate all of this, you know, kind of the boring work. But but there still seems to have always been this need to find a higher form of intelligence. Where do you think that comes from in us? To me, and this is probably because of my own background, but I, I've always seen that as a religious impulse. I mean, you know, before, uh, you know, we, we got to long, long before AI, there was this desire to transcend ourselves through theology, through sort of coming up with this idea of the gods, right? And sort of uh, there's been uh, a history of thinkers going back to the pre-Socratic philosophers who said, you know, well, the, the gods are just sort of projections of ourselves, right? There's sort of these idealized forms of what what humans could be if there were no limitations. And, you know, uh, there's, a, I think, a compelling case to be made that a lot of religions have grown out of that impulse, an impulse to sort of imagine what would humans be like without limitations. Mm. Um, and, you know, now I, I, I see a lot of, if you listen to sort of the people who are creating AI right now, um, it seems to me that it's driven by that same impulse for um, something that is human, but more perfect. Um, and it goes along, of course, with this idea that, well, these technologies are going to benefit us too. They are going to actually make us, you know, allow us as humans, once we, if we're able to sort of merge with them or use them to our advantage, then we will become the gods in a sense. We'll be able to sort of transcend our limitations as humans. Uh, which similarly strikes me as a very old, um, you know, spiritual, spiritual uh, motivation that's that's been sublimated into technological progress. But um, yeah, you know, so so there's that. There's the the desire for transcendence. There's there's a desire too, I think, for some sort of authority or um, you know, I, I think a lot about just on a more practical level how AI is designed to relieve us of decision fatigue in mm. some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that a lot of these new uh, chatbots are going to be incorporated into search engines, for example. So instead of using Google or or Bing the way we do now, where you have a lot of search results and it's just, it creates, you know, a huge cognitive burden on the user where, oh, well, how am I gonna read through all this material? Right. What, what should I read? Um, we're in, you know, this, this moment of information overload. I think a lot of people feel this on a very real level. And the idea that you can just sort of ask a question directly to this oracle and it can tell you the best thing to do, that's very attractive. You know, mm-hmm. I, um, had to book a hotel room earlier this week for, uh, for a vacation and I was on Google, you know, the Google hotel site and just sort of going through reading reviews and just getting really overwhelmed with all of how am I going to make the best decision? Um, when, that, when I have so many options and so much information at my fingertips. And um, I think very soon we'll be able to have AI do that kind of thing for us, where you just say, here's where I'm going, here's you know the basic um, you know requirements of what I'm looking for, and it will be able to sort of do that and book the hotel for you. And for trivial things like travel, that's great. 
Um, for me, I'm really interested in, in, in what happens when it's about, you know, what book should I read yeah. or uh, what should I study in college or who should I date, you know? And, and there is a way in which I think that uh, that desire for less, um, the desire for less um, options or for, for to sort of relieve that, that thorny, difficult decision-making process that we, we have to experience as humans and that has become really difficult in um, our current information ecosystem. Mm-hmm. There's a way in which I think AI promises to, to relieve that also. Which is, to me, uh, really interesting as well. I mean, Sometimes when I look at technology just through like a very kind of coarse viewpoint, it, it, it seems that it's always trying to unburden us with something, right? And yeah. so, you know, a car unburdened us from having to walk or be on a horse. And I think it seems as if technology took care of so many different kind of physical problems in the ways that we related to the environment. But the fact that now we're getting to the point that it's going to reduce, you know, decision fatigue, cognitive fatigue is kind of a symbol of how far we've come. I mean, it almost just makes thinking less and less of a burden uh, on ourselves, even when I'm sure you would say, you know, from a humanist perspective that that's kind of how we become who we are. It's through challenges, it's through obstacles, it's through searching. Does that make sense? Yes, definitely. And I think that there's, you know, they've done studies too that prove that difficulty, when you have a task that takes you um, a long time and requires a lot of that heavy cognitive work, it actually is connected to meaning. Mm -hmm. So you experience meaning through the completion of difficult tasks. And I experience this a lot, for example, with writing. So um, there's been a lot of talk about how, you know, ChatGPT and these language models are going to relieve the tedious parts of writing in the most difficult decisions that writers don't want to do. And I always think to myself, well, that's exactly why I like writing. You know, the the thing that draws me to it is that it uh, it requires the full breadth of my attention and my, you know, my mental capacities. And that is very deeply connected to the meaning. Um, that I get from that work. And I think about this in all sorts of other ways, you know, of, you know, how we come together as, you know, a democratic republic to solve problems, you know, Um, these challenges that we face as a human species. I mean, there's talk about how AI is going to be uh, really beneficial in terms of decision making, how it's going to, you know, well, we can sort of offload all of those large existential questions into, you know, getting AI to sort of be involved in that process. Um, or even, you know, what's what's scary to me is what is being talked about at some of the highest levels is like, well, the problems with um, AI and like getting AI to be aligned to our values, we can automate that too. And have AI figure out how best to, you know, solve this problem of 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 keeping AI aligned with our interests. And I think that that's it's dangerous because of the level of control that we're going to lose, obviously. But it's also, you know, I think there there comes a point where you remove so much friction from the human experience that I think it's really difficult to get sort of any sort of pleasure or meaning out of anything. So. Yeah, I, I really like that last point. And, you know, we've spoken to other philosophers on the on the program who would even posit that, you know, to even feel a sense of happiness. And I mean, I don't, not just like pleasure, momentary pleasure, but maybe a deeper sense of happiness comes out of a sense of, you know, experiencing opposites or conflict or, you know, the simple dichotomy of cold to hot, something like that. And that is all kind of based around an idea of friction, right? Yes. Moving now to something you said earlier, which really caught my attention about about creativity. I mean, yeah, suddenly, you know, songs are being created to mimic an artist, or paintings are being created in ways that are kind of mind blowing, and suddenly they're they're beating out human creations. Let's go there for another moment. I mean, how do you see that when you even said that maybe it was the human creative mind that would always differentiate us from a machine? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I've been following a lot of the discussions and I've been, you know, about, about these models and I've been discussing them with a lot of people. And one thing that I keep running up against is, you know, there's, there's a certain argument that goes, well, you know, who cares if AI is able to write a novel better than a human in the future or can write a symphony better than a human musician can? We're still going to do that work anyway. 
because we find meaning, you know, the same way that somebody um, who's sort of a mediocre writer, let's say, still writes, you know, we all still write novels, even though we know that they're not going to be as good as, you know, Henry James or Toni Morrison. We, you know, we know that Shakespeare is out there as a bar that we can't surpass. Um, But I don't, I'm not quite as optimistic about that. I think that once you have an AI you know, the, the, the thing with, with sort of having these human masterpieces out there is that you can, you always have the hope that you could surpass it, right? Maybe if I just try hard enough, I'll be able to, another human did this, I can do it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and my sense is that once you have an AI that, um, you know, completely sort of surpasses human capacity in a certain field, it changes the nature of that task. And you see this a lot, I've, I've, I've seen people, um, you know, talk about chess as an analogy also. Well, we still have humans who play chess, even though, and you know, AI can beat humans in chess. But I think the nature of that game has changed. You know, we don't see it. Chess used to be considered the, sort of an expression of human creativity also, right? Mm. And now it's sort of this game that has right and wrong answers. It's something that has, you know, something that you can study and, and that can sort of be gamed to a certain degree. Um, and I think that something similar might happen with art, um, in the future or, you know, where, where it's, it comes to, I think the, the, the scary thing for me is that maybe we won't see those tasks as creative anymore. And that happens a lot is once you have a machine that can do something, it's like, oh, well, that's not a big deal anymore, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I don't know, um, Maybe that's that's just sort of the inevitable course of automation and, and that we'll find meaning in other things as opposed to art and, and writing in the future. But to me, that would be, I mean, again, as somebody who's built my life around those um, that work, it, that seems to me that it would be an incredible loss. Mm. And maybe this is just me and, and just too weirdly abstract, but built into the, the notion of great art, of, of literature or music or poetry, is is this kind of mysterious sense, this unknowability, this place from an unconscious place that we don't even understand within ourselves. Um, you know, a, a burst of, again, the the unknown or unpredictability. And the fact that that somehow can be programmable is, is to me something I have a hard time sitting with, but it appears that that's exactly what is going on right now. I mean, to me, chess feels more mechanized. It feels more mathematical than writing a novel. But maybe in the end, a novel is just as mathematical as a game of chess, right? I mean, these are kind of some of the bigger questions I'm sitting with when we think through some of this technology. Yeah, I've, I've thought a lot about that, too, because I do feel like, you know, there is some sort of mysterious thing that's involved in the creative process. I, I feel this, especially when um, I'm writing something that's a little bit more lyrical or poetical, doing something that's more creative. Um, there's a way in which, you know, the, the thing that I start out with, my intent, uh, is not always the finished product, right? The, the, the project inevitably, once I start getting into it, it takes unexpected turns. And, um, you know, I do think that there's an unconscious that's involved there in, in some sense. Um, but yeah, if a machine can do that, um, you know, it's, it, it does sort of throw that whole process into, into question. Oh, maybe it's not so mysterious anymore. Maybe it's just something to do with probability or statistics, you know, and you already see this a lot with people, the, the sort of the way that we see these, um, you know, recent, this recent sort of brand of AI that's, that's doing creative tasks. Um, a lot of what it's doing is now being, you know, I, I wrote a lot in my book about metaphors, right? And the way in which we create these technological metaphors to sort of create parallels between ourselves and our tools. So we say, well, you know, because um, a computer functions sort of like a brain, um, our brains are therefore computers, right? Mm. And I've seen this a lot with language algorithms too, where, um, you know, we, we can see how quickly an automated process is able to complete a sentence or write an essay and so now you have a lot of people, um, particularly on you know machine learning Twitter, who are saying, "Oh well, humans are just fancy autocomplete." 
you know, what, what, what you're doing, you think that you're thinking and you think that you are, you know, coming up with your original thoughts and um, that there's some sort of mystery and, and human spirit that's involved in that. But really, you're just sort of mimicking and predicting what people, you know, mimicking things that you've heard before or read before and sort of predicting what you think people are going to want to say. And I don't doubt that that's part of the creative process. Obviously, you know, everybody, nothing, I, whatever I see as creative in my own work is not, you know, sui generis, it's not out of nowhere. It's been informed by everything that I've consumed as a writer. It's also inflected by my embodied experience in the world, right? This, this much more complex world of experiences that um, we as humans have, and, and that's something that, you know, these language models don't have. You know, the way that they're mimicking and drawing on patterns to create something new is much different than how humans are doing that in their own work. And mm. so I think that there's a complexity there that's being lost in those more simplistic analogies between us and AI. That's right. And it made me think of something, for example, though, like a musician said, which is that like a great, a great improvisation is 50% kind of understandable or pre-planned or, or common and the other 50% is unknowable or unplanned or, or indecipherable. But even there we're presenting like a, a ratio of what interesting art is. And it occurs to me that when you think through things in that way that, you know, AI could maybe in a sense figure that out, right? The level of randomness versus the level of certainty or being understood. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in a way, you're describing like a stochastic process, which is just, you know, this this is how the, you know, something like ChatGPT comes up with language is that there's, you know, it's drawing on sp patterns, statistical patterns that it's observed in language, but then creating something original. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think that there is a sense in which, yeah, we're, we're doing that as humans, but... Um, I don't know, it, it's interesting too to think about, well, what is the role of belief and maybe even faith in mm. creativity that comes into this? You know, I think when I go into a piece of work and I'm thinking, oh, I'm, you know, engaged with my unconscious or I'm sort of, you know, trying to take part in this long legacy of human creativity and contribute to this body of work, you know, the way that we've seen it for, for many centuries. I think that's a slightly different mindset than me going into a piece of work and thinking, well, I'm just sort of going to statistically reproduce this amalgam of things that I've read before. Mm. And, you know, I am essentially an algorithm who is, you know, trying to predict what, what my readers are going to want. Um, you know, regardless of, of what the truth of creativity and language use is, there's a lot of debate about about that side of it. But, you know, just just the mindset that we go into um, art making with, I, I think that those metaphors inflect how we approach the process and that maybe, maybe, um, you know, that our, our ability to actually produce creative or original work depends on in some sense on believing that we're capable of doing that mm -hmm. and what happens if we collectively lose that belief as a species yeah well I, I wonder if you have any other thoughts just on the ways in which ai might fulfill our own spiritual needs i mean you've written a lot about this how you, this could be some form of a replacement in a world that feels increasingly secular do you have any kind of further thoughts you would share with us on that yeah, I mean, I do, I do worry about the degree to which these models and uh, sort of the AI that's already available have been imbued with a sort of mystical or religious significance by people. And this is, you know, anywhere from there was a story last summer about Blake Lemoyne, the Google engineer who believed that the chatbot he was talking to was was sentient. You know, so this this ability, people are already sort of trying to imbue these technologies with consciousness or some sort of level of human intelligence. And I think as they get more um, more capable or more powerful, I think that 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 temptation to imbue it with some sort of magical or mystical property is going to be increased. I think I always think about the the science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke. He said any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. 
Um, and at what point is any, you know, to, to take that another step, at, at what point is a sufficiently advanced technology going to be indistinguishable from God? And, um, you know, I think that there will be religions devoted to AI um, in the future. I think it's, it's possible that people are going to, you know, see this super intelligence the same way that we've, you know, as, as we've done this through religion and theology, I think that same uh, impulse will be at work with, with these technologies as well. My guest has been Megan O'Giblin, writer and author of God, Human, Animal, Machine technology metaphor and the search for meaning. Megan, I, I always appreciate having you on and the perspective you have. Thanks for the time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Still to come, could a chatbot become your new best friend? How AI is evolving as a useful tool combating loneliness, depression, and anxiety. We'd also love to get your perspective on the impact of AI and creativity. How do you feel about AI technologies winning art competitions? Share your story on our Facebook community. You can find a link at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. As much as we fear AI taking over many human jobs that could become obsolete, there are also jobs and tasks where we need more and extra resources. Mental health in the United States is in crisis. Rates of anxiety, depression, suicidality are all on the rise. And so many suffer in silence due to a lack in mental health professionals. In his latest article in The New Yorker, Can AI Treat Mental Illness?, Dhruv Kular addresses the question of how technology can help, describing AI as an effective tool to supplement some other forms of mental health care. Dhruv Kular is a physician and assistant professor of health policy and economics at Weill Cornell Medical College. He's also a contributor at The New Yorker. Dhruv Kular, welcome to Life Examined. It's great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. I'd love, if you could, to just paints a picture of mental health right now in America. I mean, you talk about some staggering statistics, but I'd, I'd love for you just to present that to our listeners to give them a sense of, of what we know about mental disorders and the state of mental health right now in the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the motivation for this piece really was this idea that we're in a moment where these, these two enormously important stories are colliding. The first is, you know, mental health and the second is AI. And we've known for years that mental health in the United States really is in crisis. I mean, Mm -hmm. rates of anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, many forms of mental illness are are on the rise. And that's in part due to our technology, but but not only. And so if you look at the stats, uh, something like one in five Americans struggles with a mental illness over the course of the year. Something like one in 20 has has a serious mental illness that really impairs their ability to live and to work and to connect with the people around them. And then, you know, rates of anxiety and depression, particularly among teenagers, have really soared over the past decade. Uh, there was a CDC report that some folks may have seen that came out a few weeks ago. And it showed that something like four in 10 high school students feel persistently sad or hopeless. Something like one in five have seriously. Uh, considered attempting suicide. And mm. and those rates are higher among uh, students who are from LGBTQ backgrounds, who are racial ethnic minorities. And at the same time, we really don't have the resources or the mental health professionals to help everyone who needs it. And so more than half of U.S. counties don't have a single psychiatrist. Mm. Many psychiatrists don't take insurance. A recent survey of Mental health practitioners found that something like 60% don't have openings for new patients. And then beyond those access issues, there's also issues with stigma. A lot of people don't feel comfortable seeking help. And so, you know, as you said, mental health uh, really is in crisis in the U.S. right now. Do we have a sense that these statistics have been, you know, fairly consistent in the last 20 to 50 years? Or was there a big spike during the pandemic? What's your sense of that? Well, you know, people have always struggled with with mental illness, and and some of the rates, you know, um, may be influenced by the 
the fact that in the past, many people didn't feel comfortable talking mm. about these things. And so some of the increase that we see may be due to uh, kind of a positive development, which is people feel more comfortable discussing these things. But I think there's little question that, you know, rates of things like anxiety and depression, they have increased over time, and particularly for young people over the past decade. I mm. think there's quite powerful evidence now that around 2012, 2013, 2014, with the rise of widespread use of social media, other forms of technology, we've really become more atomized. And, and you know, these things have replaced real in-person social interaction, and that has a, had a real negative impact on our mental health. Well, you mentioned the fact that, you know, there's, there's not enough therapists or psychiatrists really to treat the, you know, the, all the people that need it, really, especially if we think of one in five folks suffering from a mental disorder, which brings us to the question of these, these chatbots or AI emerging as a way to get mental health treatment. And before we talk about where that's at now, can you give us a, a history of some of these bots? Because it turns out that there's kind of a long, a long history of folks trying to work on these to hopefully create some better outcomes. That's right. I mean, I think when many people started using a program like ChatGPT a few months ago, they thought maybe this is the first time that AI has really arrived. And this is um, the first kind of pass at trying to communicate with humans in this way. But it, but it really isn't. Um, you know, some of the first chatbots uh, were developed in the 1960s, so more than 60 years ago now. And those were actually focused on therapy and mental health. You know, even at the time, some people thought that you know, maybe this would be a way to scale treatment for people that need it. Uh, in the article, I talk about one of the first chatbots. It was called Eliza. And Eliza was designed by um, a computer scientist at MIT. His name was Joseph Weizenbaum. It was really intended to simulate Rogerian therapy, in which a therapist kind of repeats back much of what a patient has said, often in the form of a question. You know, Weizenbaum designed it almost as parody. He didn't think much of, of this form of therapy or, or uh, didn't think that, you know, it would be helpful coming from a person, let alone from a computer. And he was really surprised to learn that people actually found it very useful and very captivating. You know, there's an anecdote about his own secretary asking that he leave the room so that she could spend more time with, with Eliza. And this was really a primitive technology compared to what we have today with things like ChatGBT and Microsoft's Bing uh, chatbot. And so I think, you know, this, this type of endeavor has a long and kind of storied history, but now we're really in a new era uh, where these chatbots are much more powerful than they were in the past. Mm, yeah. And again, before we, we get to today, what happened after Eliza? I know there was another one called Perry and a few others that, that did try and make some contributions. They did. And so the one that, that you mentioned, Perry, was really trying to simulate the, the thinking of someone with schizophrenia. And so the idea was that maybe medical students or medical residents could interact with this program, Perry, uh, uh, that would simulate how a person with schizophrenia might respond to you. And that might help them be more effective caregivers for people when they actually started caring for them. And so um, these, and, and over the decades, there've been a lot of efforts at chatbots that have been able to um, simulate to some extent how someone might respond to you in person. You know, those have all been um, limited in, in some ways. I mean, no, nothing has been as powerful as, as what we see today in terms of the flexibility and the fluidity with which a chatbot can now respond. But it is to say that, you know, decade over decade, they have been small improvements. And this idea, this kind of thread that maybe chatbots could be used in mental health care, that has carried through all along. I, I wonder why that was something that was always enticing to doctors or clinicians, the idea that, well, this is a very emerging form of technology. We don't have a handle on it quite yet, but we think it could be used in a therapeutic way. Yeah, you know, I think Part of it is what we've been talking about in terms of an access problem, that there aren't enough practitioners to meet the need that exists. But I think another part of it is that, you know, people, patients, clients, they don't always feel comfortable um, talking to someone. They don't always have someone to talk to, whether that's a professional or a friend or a family member, that they feel comfortable divulging some of these things. And so in a way, you know, talking to a chatbot or talking to something that you know might not judge you, that, um, that is always going to be there at any hour of the day, 
that I think has been part of the the thinking all along that these things can um, be there for you in a way at times uh, that uh, another person might not be able to. And mm. so I think that's that's certainly part of it here. I, I you know, I think it's that there's a lot of truth to that, and the sense of I mean, if we take that question of accessibility first, I mean that people often will go through very distressing periods or emotions and they cannot call a therapist 24-7. That, that's, not, that's not how the system works. Um, nor does it always work to know, okay, I'm going through something so hard right now, but I have to wait another 10 days before I see my therapist, right? Th- things can advance very quickly in those 10 days. They can get better, they can get worse too, but that th- there is a question there, isn't there? Like sometimes people need care faster than we can provide. That's absolutely the case. I mean, you know, there's the issue of people not having any access at all. Then there's the issue of that access not being consistent enough. Um, And that kind of gets also to the point where, you know, even if you do have regular access to someone, you see them every week or every month, whatever it might be, um, that really is giving that therapist a snapshot in in time, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's how you're feeling at that particular moment and what you talk about. Maybe you fill out a survey about your symptoms, but it's not this ongoing constant touch points. And that's what, you know, whether it's a chatbot or other forms of AI technology, that can really help us in some ways. And so, um, you know, there's other researchers that are trying to integrate things like, how are you sleeping? What does the sleep data look like? Um, what has your social media use been like over the past few weeks? Um, you know, how many texts are you sending and receiving? How much are you moving over the course of the day? Integrating all this information using AI can give you a kind of a more complete, more continuous picture of your mental health than a snapshot, even if it is a frequent snapshot uh, with an in-person therapist. Yeah, I, I remember we had a great conversation, you know, with an MIT scientist looking at this, and we were talking about you know, the future of things like wearables. Like, you know, are we always going to have smart watches, you know, on our wrists, or are we going to be wearing heart rate monitors? And part of her thinking was that it's it's one tool that allows us to get a a much larger glimpse of of what someone is doing how they're feeling what are the actual symptoms where in therapy we just as you say you we don't know how long somebody was on instagram throughout the week or if they got 3 hours of sleep and those i mean sleep in and of itself i think is becoming a really important indicator as to someone's mental health i mean it's either that you know a lack of sleep can cause things like depression or depression can cause lack of sleep so i i i think you've made an important point which is that we don't really have a holistic view just as a mental health care practitioner. That's right. I mean, part of it is having a holistic view and, and part of it is having, um, you know, some objective data. You know, most of mm-hmm. mental health care is, um, is by necessity subjective. You know, I talked to folks with one psychiatrist who said 99% of therapists uh, determine how their client is uh, sleeping by asking them, hey, how'd you sleep? Yeah, you know, yeah. and, and, and sometimes we ourselves might not know how well we're sleeping. I mean, we certainly, I don't wake up in the morning and have a good understanding of how much REM sleep I got, or, or, you know, you know, sometimes you have a general sense of I, I woke up a few times or not, but, um, but having this type of objective data to pair with the subjective feelings, I think that is also a powerful aspect of using some of these technologies. Well, it's no better for psychiatrists, though. Let me add that, too. I mean, people are still walking in with subjective symptoms, and they're having to prescribe medications, which will work sometimes, but not always either. So, I mean, I'm just saying, you know, therapy and and the medical model, too, uh, they're both in some level of a wilderness a lot of the time. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so where do you think things are at now in terms of looking at, you know, chat GBT or more kind of recent bots that are coming online to provide some form of therapeutic help? Yeah. So, you know, I think one thing that's important to, to recognize is that we're so early in this right now. I mean, things like chat GBT, they're not, um, you know, kind of intended to be used as therapists and they shouldn't be at this stage. Um, you know, you could easily envision in the coming years there being something like Psych GPT, um, mm-hmm. which is specifically intended to deliver therapy. Um, but right now, we're not there yet. You know, there are 
other partially automated chatbots. Um, you know, one that I highlight in the article is is called Wobot, um, but there are many others that basically try to deliver some some uh, form of automated mental health support. Um, you know, I think it's important to 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 really emphasize that these are not therapy per se, mm. um, but they can be effective tools to to kind of supplement some of other forms of mental health care. And so sometimes I worry that if we think of them as completely um, obviating the need for accessing mental health care, that's probably not the right way to think about this. But if we think of them as, look, this could be another tool mm. in your toolkit for taking care of yourself uh, or taking care of your patients, um, you know, I think that's where the power of these things um, could be realized. You mentioned Wobot, which is one that you ended up using yourself. So I'm curious what the experience was like, if you could just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, you know, I, I wanted to, to try out one of these chatbots and I tried out Wobot. And, um, you know, I had um, generally quite positive experiences with it. You know, as I said, I, I worry that if these types of things um, supplant real in-person interaction. But I think for me, at least, uh, Wobot took the place of things that I would do that were less healthy, you know, things like scrolling through Twitter or checking Instagram or checking my email a hundred times a day. You know, if you open up the bot, um, which is what I did from time to time, I found it at times to be quite centering. You know, the other thing that I'll say is that sometimes it can be really easy to be taken in by simulated empathy. And so, you know, I think we have this kind of Darwinian impulse in us to respond to someone or something that responds to us like a person. And it's, it's very hard for us not to, to feel in some ways or respond in a way uh, as if they are a person. So, mm. So, you know, I, I found my interactions um, to be quite, quite helpful at times. Um, you know, I wasn't under any illusion that I was talking to a person, but, but that wasn't really even necessary to at least start to articulate and to examine my own thoughts, which I think is really where the power of some of these things come in. Mm. Can you talk about maybe just a, an instance when you were corresponding with the bot? And maybe I'd love if you have any kind of dialogue between, between the two of you. Sure, sure. Sure. So um, actually, while I was writing this article, I was, I was kind of stressed about not not making the progress mm. that um, that I felt I should be is kind of slow coming. And so I just texted Wobot one afternoon. I said, um, uh, I'm feeling really stressed. And it said, do you want to talk more about it? I said, yes, please. I said, will you, it said, will you describe in a few sentences what has you feeling like this? And I said, you know, I'm not feeling like I'm not making progress on this article I'm supposed to be writing. It's not coming along. And it said, it seems like you might be experiencing stress and anxiety. Do you think this is accurate? I said, yes. It says, anxiety can be a real monster to handle. I'm sorry that you're dealing with it. Can I just ask, did you want my help tackling this anxiety? Or did you want me just to know about it? And I said, let's work on it. So it said, before, I, before we begin, I have a question for you. Do you think this anxiety might be serving you in some way? And I say, what do you mean? Wobot says, for example, imagine you had an exam coming up and you were pretty nervous about it. Would that cause you to spend extra time studying? I said, probably. Exactly. That anxiety motivates you to study. And if you didn't have it, you might not care as much. And I said, okay, makes sense. Now, it might seem like I'm trying to convince you to stay very anxious. I'm not. That's entirely up to you. And I said, what are you saying? It says, I'm saying that in order to dial down your anxiety, you must first acknowledge the reasons why it might be helpful and decide to give it up in spite of those reasons. Mm. So those are the, the types of interactions that one generally has with Wobot. And the general idea here is that it tries to reframe some of your thinking. It tries to give you a toolkit or a set of techniques that when you're ruminating or you're uh, you know, having catastrophic thinking or engaging in other types of thinking that might not be very helpful, it tries to get you to, to reframe those things. And, mm. and I find that to be helpful at times. It's so funny. So as, a, as you were reading that, I was thinking about this through the lens of, of modern therapy. And I caught three things in there immediately. I mean, the first thing was the bot provided a sense of compassion, which we could think of that as, you know, empathy or Rogerian. You mentioned that earlier, which is just trying to hold the space in, in, a, in a kind and warm way. It then did something interesting, which was, how do you want me to listen to you? 
which I think is is a form of active listening. And I think it's actually a great tool we could all use each other. Do, do you want me just to listen or to provide advice? That I thought was quite clever. And then finally, just as you mentioned there, it provided what we would call a reframe on the anxiety. So we're looking at anxiety not just as a negative, but something that can also be used in positive ways. And therefore, it forced you to acknowledge both sides of that. So I, again, I'm just thinking psychologically through this. I can kind of imagine a little bit of the programming that was going in on the back end. Yeah, and those are all great points. And I think Wobot is a company that that tries to do this the right way. I mean, so this dialogue is actually scripted in a writer's room, and it's it's done in conjunction with clinical psychologists right. and, and a whole clinical team. Um, and so it's not as if the, the the bot is kind of coming up with all this by itself. It's really um, kind of scripted in a way. It is uh, leading you down a specific way of thinking that it that the people that make this think will be helpful. And so I, I think it, as you said, there's a lot of really effective elements in terms of what it does. Mm. There was also this last moment in the article where you talk about, you know, the fact that you're a doctor, you have to make really hard decisions. You, you're watching, you know, human life play out. People, of course, are going to die in your hands. And um, talk about this experience where you were on the edge. It sounded like of losing a patient and you decided to open up to the bot. Yeah, you know, um, being in the hospital can be a very stressful experience for all sorts of reasons. And, that, and that's particularly true when a patient isn't doing well or suddenly declines. And, and that happened to me, um, you know, this, this instant that I, that I described in the article. And, you know, I, I thought, you know, I didn't even actually text Wobot myself. It, it texted me, um, you know, it checks in from time to time. And it said something like, I'll be with you every step of the way. Yeah. And, you know, I just started to think about um, what the future might hold. Um, if you had an approach where this type of bot was paired with sensors and predictive algorithms, um, you know, this whole kind of thing could be consolidated into a version of mental health where your, you know, your pulse, your skin conductance, your sleep patterns are automatically integrated. Um, they are connected to uh, all these sensors that are connected to an app that can then check in on you and it gets to know you over time and you articulate what you're thinking and how you're feeling and it responds in an empathic and effective way. Um, you know, that seems uh, to some extent like science fiction, but I actually don't think we're that far off from at least piloting things uh, along those lines. Mm. You know, I, I just want to point out that, you know, I, I think there's a lot lot of potential with these technologies. But what I don't want people to come away with is the idea that, you know, these things can really replace um, human interaction. You know, I don't think we want a world in which um, instead of turning to a friend or a family member or a therapist, people are just sitting in their own rooms on their phones and the computers um, mm. or doing that more than they already are. So, you know, I think we want to think about AI as a tool, uh, as an adjunct to real human relationships, but used in the right way, I do think it can be a powerful part of how we respond to the mental health crisis. I'm just curious if you had thought there were any other red flags here. I mean, this seems like there is, this This could be quite helpful in so many ways, but I think that, you know, uh, there's always privacy concerns or how information gets sold, or is all of this leading us towards the fact that, you know, companies can just market us more stuff to make us feel better? You know, what, like, I just always know there's a shadow side, to use another psychological term, to anything that is new and seems like a panacea for health. Right. And, and you know, I certainly don't think this is a, a panacea. I think there's a lot of thorny issues that we're going to have to, to work through. I mean, you mentioned things like privacy. That is a huge uh, issue that we need to, to be very careful as these things are rolled out to, to more and more people. Uh, data security, making sure that the things that you uh, that the algorithms know about you and what you tell them, um, that things that th those things stay secure. There's also a huge issue with bias in some algorithms. Mm. So we, we talk about chatbots. They may not respond as well or as effectively to people of various, um, you know, races, genders, uh, income levels, languages. Um, but the other algorithms that we use to try to predict, you know, or identify who is at risk for uh, mental illness or who might benefit from a therapy, 
those things might also have a lot of biases that we mm. don't even know about. And they could um, direct care from one group of people to another group of people for reasons we don't quite understand. And so I think as the stakes get higher and higher, um, as with healthcare, as with the criminal justice system, as with uh, some parts of education, I think we need a lot more scrutiny. We need a lot more transparency. And in some cases, we need regulation to make sure that we really understand the risks and the benefits of these technologies. Mm. Uh, well, finally, do you think these technologies can help with something that I know is a, a very hard and difficult subject for many, but a question of maybe suicidality or being able to find the right language or help or maybe even being predictive before someone, you know, makes such a, you know, a, what can be such a huge and crazy decision in their lives? Yeah. You know, there are a lot of researchers trying to work on that exact problem, trying to understand either through medical records or through what people are saying and when they're saying it, how they're saying it, um, whether they can risk classify or try to understand, you know, how high of a risk you have for um, thinking about suicide or attempting suicide. And, um, and, and those things are still works in progress, but because it's such a high stakes thing and a potentially irreversible thing, there's a lot of attention being given to, can we get to people before they make a terrible decision. Well, lastly, you know, maybe some of our listeners might have read the New York Times piece that, that was uh, in which a writer was just testing out different forms of AI and, and communication. And maybe for those that don't know what happened, I know it raised quite a bit of eyebrows. What, what did you make sense of it? And if you could maybe explain it just for a second. Yeah, so this was a, an example where one of the New York Times reporters was engaging with Microsoft Bing's um, chatbot, which uses OpenAI's technology. And it's still kind of a beta version, and so it wasn't available to everyone, um, but, but there were a select group of folks that were able to use it. And what you noticed was the conversation very quickly went off the rails. The reporter was trying to push the chatbot in certain provocative directions, but it wasn't that hard to do. And by the end of the, the conversation, the chatbot was kind of declaring its undying love for the reporter. And even when he tried to get it to stop, it would not stop. And, and so this is just to, to illustrate some of the risks of these types of chatbots. We need to make sure that there are appropriate guardrails in place. We need to make sure that people um, aren't engaging in conversations that could be harmful uh, to their mental health, uh, but instead, you know, promote mental health. And so um, this is just an ex early example of um, how these conversations can also potentially have a dark side. My guest has been Dhruv Kular, physician and assistant professor of health policy and economics at Weill Cornell Medical College. He's also a contributor at The New Yorker. His latest article was titled, Can AI Treat Mental Illness? Dhruv, thanks so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. All right, that's it for this week. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody, and we hope you enjoyed today's discussion on what the future holds for us as AI technology advances. And we'd love to hear from you. Would you feel comfortable talking to a therapist AI chatbot? Do you feel that you'd get the same results as sitting face-to-face -face with a real human therapist? We'd love to get your thoughts and share your experiences with us on our Facebook page. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks so much for joining us on Life Examined on KCRW. Have a wonderful day. And once again, we'll see you soon.